Um, uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for staying through all that. Um, how, how do we begin? In the beginning. That's a, that was a lot of uh, personal um, uh, trauma for me to watch. How is it? I could use a, a whiskey. My initial reaction and my initial comment is that it's that everything looked like one film mm -hmm. from the 1986, where everybody who seems to be absent from uh, Zoe Leonard's analog is walking on the street. The people, the people missing from those photographs are walking on the street. But I've, I felt one continuous film, even with our little part inserted in it. Oh, I agree. But also, I mean, that, I, I'm, I'm at the extreme edge of that, like kind of stuck in, in, um, in one investigation. But I do want to say just to, uh, um, first of all, this, the, the, the projection was so nice tonight. So thank you to everyone that worked on that. The, the, I've been showing 8mm for so many years. It's the first time I feel like 8mm was shown properly. I hope it wasn't too small or it looked good. I was watching from the other side, so maybe I couldn't really tell. But um, I did want to say that um, uh, that I almost really don't understand myself where I fit in as a filmmaker or how I'm a filmmaker or why I'm a filmmaker. Um, but when we all met, um, we we did somehow, and my memory's foggy on this, I think we decided that every Friday night we'd watch films. Sunday. Every Sunday, right? You didn't have a child. Though. That's right, there was no kid. And we were just gonna, and I think at the time, maybe we were all just trying to figure out the most basic level things. Um, you know, what, why? How do you judge film? How do, how do we, if we shoot something, how do we judge it? Is it good, is it bad? Is it important? Are we on to something, are we not, are we lost? And somewhere in, 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 um, in, in the first film in Boytown, which is this very, I mean, I haven't looked at that film, God knows how long, and, and it's from 1987. And in a way, it was, it was made, you know, just post Bard College Film Department, uh, um, uh, going through the motions of the other filmmakers that were my mentors there at the time. And, um, uh, but when, when um, anyway, that, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about how, how I, we were, I was lost a little bit and we cobbled something together. And I don't think I changed very much as a filmmaker. But the difference for me is I didn't know why or what, and now I think I have a more grounded idea of why. What I see, I see that yes, they, they look one film, mm -hmm. but I will also say no, they don't, because um, the first film, you have the, the angle as your style, right? right. The, the, and it's very pre predominant, mm -hmm. and you have some pun shots, but very, not a lot. Right. The second film, you introduced sound, in which yes. you didn't have before, because you were super restrict about silent film, mm -hmm. right. right? And in the third film, uh, I think you really start to create your, your style. 
and your voice. That, that's, that's the way I see. And, and, and then there's a lot of things in the third film that uh, the, the camera movement and the pace and the, the, and the, the idea of trans in cinema in the way mm -hmm. that you really lost yourself in, in, in the image, right? That you, you really get in, in stop. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it, you're building this body of work. Yeah, and, and it stop begins when I'm just filming. I, at that time, I was working as a director of photography, yeah. and, um, and I was working all the time as a director of photography. I was so busy. There are more planes and, than in James Bond. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I, in some ways, just stopped. There was, there, was, there was no sense that I would even have time to make films that were my own films at that time. And so all of that stuff at the beginning of Stop was made 100% because I had a kid suddenly. And, and, and I thought that, um, uh, oh, 16 millimeter was a really kind of nice way of doing the kind of things parents want to do. Yeah. And, and then there's a certain point in the course of those roles where, where um, I kind of freak out over what's going on between me and the image. And, um, and maybe that is actually close to where you become kind of uh, peripheral characters in that first part of, of Stop. And in the subsequent three parts, you're actually more present. Um, but uh, there was, uh, um, anyway, that, that trip to Paris. I mean, the, the, the first thing, when we say we're meeting on Sunday night trying to figure it out, but this, to me, has always been production almost without an audience. Right. Deliberately so, without an audience, and with a chosen audience. So, to an extent, we chose each other as audience and interlocutors, even, I, I mean, um, it didn't have a specific place to be in the world gallery or the museum or except the the micro cinema um you mentioned the word uh, trauma i remember there's a very short shot of jonas yeah and that's in a paris cafe mm -hmm. and i remember that very same night uh, i asked jonas what's your editing technique how do you know when you're shooting a diary and then you cut the film what is that you have to let go because all of jonas's footage it's incredible, and Jonas has been in the right place in the right time since the late 1940s. So what do you leave out? And says, oh, my editing system is to let the film sit for 20 or 25 years. <laughs> and then I know. So I, I, I think one thing that has happened to you, and as she said, you're, you find your personal talent, is that time, history has edited the films. History, the, the last shot, the September 11th, the history provides subject matter. You provide form. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think he, the form uh, becomes more, um, you start to, to really create a language. And the camera becomes really part of your body. And the, as you said, the briefing, right? Mm -hmm. the, 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 the image as, as, as a briefing moment. Mm -hmm. And, and, the, and the, the physicality of the shot. And this is way more apparently in, in stop. Right? And you, you really uh, understand your language and, and play with it. And, and you, you have like this parameters in, in the film, but also you have a lot of freedom 
And it's mm -hmm. a mix of these two things. And, and we, we, I, I talked to you um, yesterday about uh, the way you include sound in stop, that I think it's absolutely brilliant, because you have certain moments in the film in which the sound met, seems to match with the image, but in reality it never matches with the image because it's extremely uh, uh, constructed mm -hmm. in a completely different time frame, right? right. And you, you, you invented the sound from scratch. Right. And then you have this moment in which the sound, the sound collapses with the image and moments that the sound completely detaches from the image and it, it creates another, form, another perception of, of what, is, what exactly is going on. Mm -hmm. right? And I think this moment in between that the sound is not connected with the image, for me, are the moments in which I get detached from the image. That I, I get really, I, like I get immersed in the in the footage, and I really lose myself. And suddenly, when I see these disconnections, I, I I get far away from the image Im immediately. And it, all the time, I have this movement of getting completely immersed and getting completely far away. Yeah. And I think this is fascinating. Yeah. Well, um, in a way, this is a film that could, I think had only been made by someone that was really radically against sound. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, again, sound and for the idea of the, the movie camera, in this case, the Bolex, uh, as a sole technology to produce a film that should be its own channel. Absolutely. But then very aware of the kind of um, uh, terrible, painful yearning for sound. I mean, the sense that, that it doesn't work. And, right? But I think in Twins, uh -huh. that's the way you introduce sound, because Twins, it's, a, it's kind of unbearable, the sound. The sound. Yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It, you really, f the sound is very preeminent. Yeah. And I remember at that time when you were doing it, you were very happy that you were creating this yeah. difficult sound. Yeah, because I think that was, the, that was, that was everything was silent yeah. until Twins. Yeah. And Twins the, was, um, Nick and Karen invited me to participate and somehow participate in this film that they were making that spanned both sides of 9-11. Um, but I thought to take my footage and at the time, everything that I was doing was, you know, it was all this sort of sentimentally um, produced film that I was making very unsentimental structural systems around. And, um, and and I remember the, the idea was to take your film and to use that as a score for my film. Yeah. So my film actually matches shot for shot, frame for frame, the shot lengths in your film. Because there was something in, there was this kind of personal, very personally felt musicality in the visual images that you were, that, that you were cutting. And this was something that I wasn't allowing myself at that time. And I thought, oh, I can now kind of, in a way, construct a system, and, but also kind of uh, project myself into the, the kind of editing musicality that you were working with in, in your first half of Twins. Yeah. And, and, in, you know, and then also, simply, then the idea that we'd have these matching films that would be somehow, in a sense, like the Twin Towers. There were these things that stood side by side. In a, in a strangely identical, uncomfortably identical way. 
And, um, uh, but, but it did, um, I, I did find that an amazing way to work with, with you, with both of you, you know, to collaborate. It was really a projection um, into what, you know, what the way you were projecting yourself into the footage. And looking at it again now, uh, you know, it comes across very strongly to me. I mean, the question of sound again, I think your, your filmmaking asks from the viewer and from yourself some kind of contract with intimacy. Mm -hmm. That's a, you, the, the minute you start singing and you see a couple of shots, you, we are drawn into an intimacy and that's what you're going to be presenting and asking from the viewer. Um, uh, not only because there's always this transit between architecture and children, right? It's something very impersonal, cars passing by, architecture, and then it's mostly, or a lot of <coughs> children from very early on, before even you have your own, right. your own uh, uh, child. Um, and what happens with sound is, is the moment where that contract is directed. Because with sound, the image becomes real, and as she said, possible or, or believable. This is, it, it appears to be true. And incredibly, in, in our film, and at the time we were collaborating with this Brazilian artist and musician, and initially our film was a film that was gonna be about these bridges connecting buildings. And we have this footage of the, two, the connection between um, World Trade Center 5 and, the, and 1 and 2, that anamorphic, and then the other, the other footage is from what later will become the High Line. It's in Chelsea before Chelsea became Chelsea. Mm -hmm. um, and then 9-11 happens, but for us, sound is, again, not the place of intimacy, but the place of ideology. It's actually the abstract sound of the music becomes, is Bush. The, the voice we hear is Bush's. George, the first voice that articulates sentences and words, it's W's. The, the terrifying, today is terrifying, <laughs> looking back and back then. Um, so, um, I, perhaps sound is the moment in which you accept that contract, that you will present the viewer with, a, with an intimacy, with the reality of an intimacy. And I think that's what leads later to a feature film to a feature film about music, no less, and about intimacy and, and music. But it's somehow accepting, coming out of the form, the formal constraints of the image itself and accepting that, which is also accepting, as she said, that the image is constructed is, well, it's accepting the spectacle somehow, right? It's, it's accepting the untruth, the inherent untruth of film. Right, that's right, because the, the, uh, the image is immediate, and it's produced immediately, and it kind of exists as a proof. And actually, I think it's it's uh, it's this embedded theme in film, right? Is, and, okay. right and and then, but sound is um, uh, I, I think one of the polarities of life and film. But it's also a departure from your teachers. Huh? The traditional solution for a quote-unquote experimental film for sound right. is the voiceover, because the voiceover will never be alive. Is Jonas speaking over his own film? Yeah. Even in Hollis Frampton, is Hollis's text yeah, and Michael Snow speaking. So the voiceover is truthful as the footage. 
Right. Well, there's that, and then there's the Kubelka model, which is kind of the, the penultimate right. uh, use of sound that hasn't gone past that. And, um, and, you know, I don't know, maybe we throw in um, the, the, the score of Scorpio Rising. But, um, uh, but I, so I did want to face that challenge of dealing with quite an impossible formal area. And, um, uh, and, 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 and I don't know how, oh, wait a second. Actually, this is how it started. Jason Simon invited me to make a 30, uh, one minute, 60 second, piece of an exquisite corpse uh, feature film. Everyone, every filmmaker invited would make just 60 seconds of it, knowing only the first few seconds of the prior one. And I thought, oh, this should feel Hollywood, because it's a feature. OK, and, and, so, and so I took my silent film, and I said, well, oh, I'll make it feel more movie-like. And then I became crazy addicted to this kind of uh, reconstruction of what the sound may have been like, and how truthful could I be, uh, not truthful, but how much can I, could I produce that illusion of randomness and truth, which is so hard to do. And, and yeah, we, we, we. No, uh, you, you invited it. I mean, to me, the amazing moment is you invented something that I don't think anybody had invented before, which is to recognize YouTube as a sound library, because you can search a subject and ignore the image, and then it's a sound library, which is what you mm -hmm. invented to produce that soundtrack. Well, I'm not sure if no one else had done that before, but I've got to tell you, if you're looking for sound, it's, yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. But, what I, but, but ultimately what I found, what, 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 I'm, what I'm thinking about with the sound is how to see film silently. So all that sound, in a way, is there so that you can enter into the silent passages and kind of be fooled into the immersiveness that the sound allows. Because really, I don't want sound. But, but if you don't have sound, there's almost a physical. Like, I've never gone to a Stan Brakhage screening ever once in my entire life, and I've been to hundreds, where someone in the audience didn't have a coughing fit. <laughs> but, right? Because you're, you're the, the organ to make sound, it starts to get like crazy activated in this despair. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and this is to me one of the polarities of filmmaking. It's that, you know, we, we, if, you, if you want to break it down and think, what is perception? Because film is this way of kind of drawing perception. And so if you want to think about it, and just in, without film, you want to think about it sitting, sitting in a room by yourself, we, we believe that sound and, and, and picture exist on separate channels because we've kind of been talked into it from our film knowledge. But it's almost hard to know that they don't, that everything gets joined into thought. And so, so that's the kind of the weird space that I'm trying to draw with sound. And, it, and, you, it, mm -hmm. and it's very present right. in, the, in the editing and, mm -hmm. and the way you, you draw the viewer to have this immersion and then you break. Immersion right. and then you break. Right. And, and, and when you break, of course, you know, the silent films like, <laughs> like um, uh, uh, Boytown desires the audience to kind of sensitize themselves to all of the various rhythms that are going on in, in, in the shot. I mean, which is kind of a classic 
idea from lyrical film, but there's the, you know, the internal rhythms and then there's the rhythm of the cut and these things behave harmoniously or dissonantly and this is what you're dealing with. And, and um, so, uh, but, but I, got, I got sucked into this strange virtual reality of, of um, drawing the scenes, like I'd look at them and render them somehow in sound. And that was, you know, wildly obsessive, a year's labor, um, you know, with all the lips moving and trying to make it really seem like the person's talking. And the reason why you never understand a single thing anyone says is because it's just like I'm getting a syllable here and a syllable there to match, what, to match their, their mouths. I know you two spoke, so I should speak now. That's why you're looking at me. <laughs> fair is fair. Um, the, um, the other thing is with stop part one mm -hmm. um, is, again, you do understand full sentences when you see the television footage of 9-11. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are yeah. full sentences. Those are not. Uh, I, I also, this was a complete coincidence, really. I mean, uh, this film stop, the full stop, is distilled down from 200 hours of film, and and my idea for it was to abandon systems and kind of go back to what I was doing with eight millimeter. I was going to look at my film, and if I liked it, it'd be in. If I didn't like it, it'd be out. And I'll just keep working like that. That's a system. That's a system. This system. Yeah, yeah. But that was the only that was that tried to be the only system. Other little systems kept like <laughs> like I couldn't shake them. But um, but as it, it got down, it got down to like exactly two hours, almost to the second. And that image of 9/11 just happened to be at that exact 30-minute mark. But, but in reality, it's more of a question, which is the the formalistic diaristic tradition you, you seem to uphold and to have mm -hmm. learned at Bard and mm -hmm. um, has at, at its core not to tell a story. Has at its, mm -hmm. core, has at its core an anti-narrative anti ideology in the sense that a narrative doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a protagonist you identify with, i.e. a constructive nar narrative that will manipulate somehow the, feeling of, the feelings of the spectator in one direction or another direction. Mm -hmm. And what to me happens incredibly in your films is like, well, okay, there's a shot and another shot and they don't have a consecutive order. We change countries, people, people mm -hmm. appear and disappear, some people is recurrent, some people is not recurrent, themes weave in and out. <laughs> and the more stuff you add, the more a narrative gets constructed. The more it actually does become a narrative film that tells a story. This person is growing up in this culture, in this country. These are the events happening. This is how technology is unfolding. This is how the political landscape is unfolding. Right. It well, does tell a story of a yeah. period which ends with a catastrophic and disastrous event, September 11. <laughs> right. It is a narrative film she, uh, with a beginning, course. a middle, yeah, and an end. Of course. And, and I mean, to me, it's extremely important to offer this alternative idea of narrative and this alternative idea of story. Mm -hmm. Because story is, you know, one of one of the things that I learned from doing it is is the absolute 
artificial nature of story. And that, you know, that in the same way that our, the way we perceive the world is really nothing at all like a picture, the way we travel in time over the course of our lives is equally nothing like story. Because we're constantly in these hubs that are branching out into other associations. And so, so in a way, this kind of filmmaking tries to present a storytelling uh, um, method. But you, you seem to be talking about a model of perception. <laughs> yes. Or a filmmaking like describing yes. some kind of phenomenology of perception. Yes. Or a knowledge formation. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Time. This is time. Time. Yes. Time. Yes. 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 Yeah. The great philosophical revolution of the twentieth century is the introduction of time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And 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 strangely, I mean, I also think it's an embedded. I, I, I forewarn you, yeah. we're heading into very murky territory. Yeah. <laughs> no, but this we're is talking a, about the greatest philosophical yeah. traditions yeah. and the introduction of time in 20th century philosophical but, tradition. Beware. But these things, this is embedded. <laughs> this is embedded in all film. There's certain there's certain stories that are embedded in film because of what film does. And and if but you, my conception is that you, history sets your time in the end of the day. History, actual history. In this case, yeah. Yes, it, in this particular case, it does. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say that the other, the, 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 the three later sections of stop after this are all, continue to be affected by that one historical moment. And yeah, and it actually ends on another historical moment, but doesn't really get to another one until the, the very end. So when, it, when it's playing at a theater near you, <laughs> please check it out. <laughs> I think... Huh. We'll extract more out of you if we open yes. to I questions agree. or, um, you know, anytime there's questions and answers, there's people who want to actually make statements, not questions. And they try to disguise them as questions. So if somebody has a statement, make statements. Don't ask questions. Such a, please. Can I start with a question? <laughs> um, I just wanted to pick you up, Nick. Earlier on, you were talking about this uh, activist mode and or pacifist mode in relation to film. So can you, just, just in terms of how you were talking about Jeff and Karen as well. Well, um, I remember when we were meeting every Sunday night with a 60 millimeter projector and an eight projector and looking at different films, ours and others, that Jeff once said that turning on a projector is like igniting a fire. and the activity of filmmaking and the activity of filmmaking without a defined audience is fundamentally an activist thing. You have to be active in the field and it implies free labor and activism. And I wanted to point out that, and I, it was a joke, I said I'm a pacifist because I spend more time in hard chairs looking at <laughs> film. I have never been an activist, but both Karen and Jeff Karen has been very active in film <laughs> restoration and she has rescued the lost the state of a major American experimental woman filmmaker, Storm the Hirsch, and then fundraise the money to restore it all. And Jeff, who was a founder of the Collective for Living Cinema, a curator of a film series, then in the collective gallery that we have, Orchard, brought 
consistently film and film projects and situation, along with Jason, who's also an activist in that <laughs> sense. He's also an activist in that sense. And now is at the board of, of, uh, of uh, Line Industries. To make this happen is, is essentially an act of activism. So that's a dimension they have. That's what I was telling you. But that's a statement, not a question. It's a fact, too. <laughs> it's a factual statement. <laughs> Obvious questions are good. Obvious question, okay. Warren, ask a question. <laughs> or make a statement. It's <laughs> My question might be your question. In what order? Beginning, middle, and end. That's a very obvious That's an unanswerable question. <laughs> I just want to give you your two. That's the new world. You have to answer now. I'm you, you, That was unanswerable. It's <laughs> fixed. It's fixed. Exactly. But I have something to say. Maybe it's not very precise, but I remember uh, when we start to hang around and watch films together, every time you were going out, you had a camera with you, right? Mm -hmm. And you were filming all the time. And, and, and your relationship to the world was through the bolex. Like, yeah, it was shooting? really impossible to see Jeff in any location without a camera, right? Mm -hmm. And you were constantly filming. People. It also had become socially acceptable that he was shooting, right? But the, 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 and, and then you have this double situation. In, in, in which you participate of the social gatherings, but not really because you were framing all the time everybody, right? But the act of framing in your case, I think it's, it's more trans-like because you are really into the picture <coughs> in your mind all the time. Yeah. You're building these mm -hmm. images all the time. Right. And you are, you are there, but not really. And I, and I think the, the, it's so intense, your relationship with the camera, through all these years, that you end up creating these very structural forms in order to counteract this, this profound relationship that you have with cinema, right, and, and your films. And, and, and then, and, and then I, when I think, for example, about Stop, I really, because it's the, the last film before your uh, feature, I see this, this um, trans quality, that, that it's very, very embedded. But right. I also see the index, right? Mm -hmm. That it, it, it shows you the role all the time. And, and, and it has this multiple relationships with time, right? You have the spiritual, the, 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 right, the, the phenomenological relationship, but you also have the meta mm -hmm. structure. Right. And, 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 the, and the material. Yeah, and the material, extremely, yeah. Mm -hmm. but the, and, and you have all this like interconnected. Can you talk a bit about this? Well, I will say this may sound kind of trippy, but, and it's something that, it's an insight that I gained after filming a lot. But there's this thing, okay, I'm not crazy. Um, where the landscape's actually is, the landscape is looking back at you, 
that that in in if the system of perspective, the vanishing point on the horizon is doing exactly what your eye is doing back to your eye. And when you have your eye in the viewfinder, you're in this little loop with the landscape where you've projected yourself into it and have kind of become the vanishing point, returning, and you're facing yourself in, in, in that landscape. And, and, and in a weird way, it made me realize that that on some personal level, the act of filming is this kind of process where you become aware of the world being your own projection. And when you strike that balance in the viewfinder, things do come into balance. I mean, I think that that's actually in some unconscious way without anyone knowing it. That's how compositions take form in a shot. That's, that's how meaning is determined in a shot. That's how you know the meaning when you look at, that's how you know if you see, you know, look in the viewfinder, you see a barking dog, that it means, you know, an angry dog because of, of, this, of this kind of projection. And I don't think people are aware of it, but I think this is what operates. And the more uh, uh, um, that, the more I'm led by that sensation, the more the camera leads me to things kind of like a divining rod. And this chance operation starts to become almost unbelievably fertile. Can, can I read Devil's Advocate mm -hmm. um, immediately? You seem to be channeling this full on, the Storm the Hirsch trans yeah, Storm divination. Was, Storm was, was one of my teachers. The Storm I, the Hirsch was, trans divination idea, yeah, but... It's, it's clear in the way he, he, he creates. Also, I've never seen anybody shooting like, like Jeff. He neither cocks his head nor he puts the eye in the viewfinder. The head remains straight and the camera goes either up or down and at times he doesn't even look. It's a very specific way of, of holding the camera. But isn't meaning socially constructed? The meaning of a barking dog is not determined by all these images we have seen of barking dogs. Isn't the meaning of the landscape determined by Turner and Manet? How, yes, how, yes, can, no. how can we possibly claim that between you, the camera, and the landscape looking back at you, all meaning is encompassed? The meaning of images is a social contract. Yes, that we've absorbed. Yeah, yeah. and internalized. Yeah, I don't think this is in contradiction. But, yeah, neither I, but the, 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 the what I think the, the, the break of the sound and the image that, that you create disestabilizes this fixed relationship that mm -hmm. we have with meaning. And, and it's absolutely not the same because it, it has a space in which the meaning is not fixed. Because what you are seeing and you are watching, it doesn't really relate. Yeah, he messes up with that yeah. contact. And, and he very, messes with the contact. And it's, yes. it's, it's very subtle. Because you can see, for example, you see the trucks, it's mm -hmm. never the same sound. It's yeah. always a different sound. Truck. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the water is always a different sound. It's like, a, it's very rich. Yeah. As, as, uh, uh, as, as Samu said, it's super rich, the, the, the amount of nuances in the sound and, and the break of the fixed sign. Yeah. It's there all the time. I, and I, then I, I would say it's not necessarily fixed. But I wanted to say regarding meaning that. Um, you know, it's very important to me that the images appear to not have meaning. Yeah. That's very important. You try really yeah. hard, but then 
that they're, they're the, the, that they the have planes hit the, the yeah planes. but the plane <laughs> hit the building <laughs> and then suddenly there was a thousand car crashes. <laughs> That image makes you to bring sound to, to your work because it That's was a totally really right. traumatic experience for everybody who was living in New York at that time nearby the Twin Towers. And if you if you see our film, we couldn't film the the any image of the situation we could we could only film through the television. Yeah, it's a shot of the television set yeah, of the rescuers on the because room. we are completely shocked and it was very difficult. We don't difficult. show the impact. We couldn't do it, we and we had all the cameras. We were very close to the tw uh, twin towers, uh, and we couldn't do it at all. We were filming there three days before the the the, the collapse of the twin towers, and and during the entire uh, uh, situation, we, we 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 didn't film. And you told us that it was very difficult for you to film. Oh, I, I couldn't. That shot at the end, I literally couldn't hold the camera. I mean, I could barely stand. It was anyway. Yeah. Um, back, back to um, back to <laughs> what you were talking about before, where um, actually tying together a few things: the idea of um, these filmmakers being activists. Is, um, one idea. Connecting that with the amount you're filming, I would say not that these things are quantifiable, but I would propose that it's possible that all of the filming you're doing is actually more of a social action than the later construction and, and editing and public presentation of these films. You in public with your camera observing like you're saying, affecting the landscape by observing, which is very much a scientific <coughs> discussion right now, right. Um, especially in quantum physics. I, I would say that it's li very likely that all of the filming you're doing, all of the, all of the witnessing you're doing, and its effects on the environment may actually be more of an action than this night and any future screening of these films. And I think it's something that shouldn't, I'm bringing it up because I'm saying, I, I think it's something that shouldn't be overlooked in its importance yeah. as yeah. your contribution. That's a, uh, yeah. That's very good point. A great observation. Well, it did happen during all these years, and you still didn't answer why did you stop shooting. That well, all, all the people that appear in the film, yeah. and, and if you see there's alternation of known characters that we can recognize, Dan Graham and Jonas Mikas, and later in Stop, more and more and more and, and more. It had become, because Jeff was such a fixture with the camera, it had become totally acceptable that you were talking to him and he will start shooting. People, people's behavior were unmodified by the camera, completely unmodified by the camera. He had created in a, in a fairly large social realm. And he also, something else he does, and Jeff has shot out of things for me on the street, we were working on the street and doing things. He has an ability to disappear when he's shooting. He's, it's like, I don't know, he's in the middle of a mess, Times time Square, people on the street, cops. It's, you're not allowed to shoot, whatever. And it's like he kind of disappears, really, and gets to shoot. Uh, um, so in a way, it's like an all-seeing uh, eye. 
like standing in midair somehow this idea of your very personal and subjective action or, or point of view that's that's how I've experienced it being there I mean I, I, I was there when some of the shots were 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 made is that an accurate description what what I what I always thought is that a completely integration between the camera and the body. And the body, yes. Completely integration. But people accepted it. Yeah, well, they because asked. it was completely integrated. That's, that's, it is not. That's, that's, uh, yeah. It didn't really call attention because it it's part of the, his body. The Why camera. did you stop shooting? Well, uh, uh, some, some practical reasons. No, no. Other <laughs> <laughs> things. My system was affected. You know, we filmmakers are stuck. We're kind of we're kind of on this commercial product, you know, that exists yeah. not because people want to be filmmakers. It exists out of a market and 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 the market has effect on the material film, the technology of film. And there was a, a bit of a shake-up crisis in in certain things that went down regarding that. Also, Stop is it the film about my having, not to stop filming, but having to have an end bracket to this particular strand of film, this, you know, this, this thing that got to 2,500 rolls of film, and it needed an end bracket. And then immediately after coming to that bracket, I spent a year making a feature film, a, a narrative film, and sort of more or less the Hollywood system making a feature film. And that was a very intense experience, very all-consuming <laughs> experience and a very satisfying one. And um, but I'm filming now. I'm dragging my stupid bollocks around with me again these days. Oh, cool. wow, that's nice. Yes. I, one of my favorite points is when your daughter turned. Hi. I just wanted to say at that point that one of my favorite things was when your daughter turned to you and said, "Dad, stop it." Yeah, Daddy, stop. That's yeah, the title Daddy, actually comes from that. It's just yeah. great. Yeah. I wanted to call the film Daddy Stop, and everyone said that sounds like really terrible. <laughs> but I was like, my God, it's amazing. And it, <laughs> so I just kept Stop, but then Stop kind of opened it up for different interpretation, which was, which was important in the, in the end. But it was also of, of uh, all, of the, all of the footage where I tried to make it look like someone speaking, it was so completely obvious to me what was being said. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> Nice. Was that the only point, uh, Daddy stuff, where you had anyone acknowledging? Because it seems to me that um, most of the shots, even with some of the adult shots, it's almost as if, and when you say, uh, Nick, that he disappears, it's almost as if, you know, that well, the camera was always sort of embedded in you, so that you're just totally. Most people are oblivious, and of course, kids don't give a flying fake. Well, the problem with being acknowledged is that weird mystery about the camera and the person, and you know, this is a classic mystery. Like, where's the person? Who is that person? I like to say that in the in the in the, in the projection that, that we make as an audience into films, we're kind of really projecting ourselves into someone else watching the film, not into the film. Wait. Rewind, repeat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we uh, uh, in in the as we project ourselves into film. One of the when we are shooting. No, no, no. When we're watching as an audience. When we're watching a film. Okay. One of the one of the types of projections that I think is one of the most common one is you're projecting into the person that's watching the film. 
It's not you watching the film. It's someone else that's in the position of the camera that's watching the film, and you're projecting yourself into that person. And this is such a like, funny, intangible constant in film. So when a, the direct address happens, it's, it's very, it's very uh, um, shattering you know, in, in, in different ways. But it does happen quite often in this film in, in those sorts of close-ups. There are all these faces, these close-up faces, just sort of blankly staring that um, come from, you know, it's just something that I'm doing while I'm working. Well, and, and well, generally while I'm casting, doing casting sessions with people. Uh, I'll, I'll film that way because I'll, I'll know something about them if I shoot them that way. But then when I looked at the footage, it's like, wow, that is, that's another language. Yeah. It's, an, it's another language when they're looking at the camera. So you can't just do it because if someone looks in the camera, you're literally, the image is speaking a different language. Is then in your, in your theory of the landscape and the perspectival point of view talking back at you and in fact the lens mm -hmm. being a mirror in which you see yourself, there's a difference when that happens with subjects and when that happens with objects? Huh. Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you can imagine it happening with a subject because it's easier yeah, well, to it should happen the, with the, a subject. The, the, the projection. Sorry, but yes, subjects the, do look back but, and but, talk back. But, but the landscape, and this is the thing of the pan. This is, this is the whole strange mystery of panning the camera. Because when, when you're looking at a landscape, for instance, and it's a static camera, you kind of accept the solid ground. And when the camera's moving, it's like, what the hell is that? And it gets so complicated if you start to try to figure out what's happening, what's moving, what is the abstraction of that, what's going on. Um, anyway, maybe we should, should take this to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>